Uh, as you know, uh, we've been in a series that we've entitled Living in the Light. A series that's focused in on what it means not to just talk a good game or to talk about living in the light, but about putting action to our words, about living in total fellowship with God. In the first chapter of this great uh, letter, we learned about the distinction between Jesus Christ, the real deal, and the testimony that his apostle John shares, and the claims of a false testimony that was given by false teachers. Last week we looked at three claims that were made by uh, the false teachers of those days. They were spreading rumors, they were spreading word that it didn't matter uh, about your walk with Jesus. You could live however you wanted to and still say you have fellowship with God. Some were even claiming to say that there was no sin in their lives and still others were saying that uh, they committed no sin. All of these are unbiblical arguments. We do sin. And because we sin, we stand in bondage to that sin and bondage to the devil. So what are we to do? First John chapter uh, 2 tells us, to give us some context, let us read from First John chapter 1 verse 5 and then we will get into our text this morning. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Our text for the morning. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, tonight we're going to sit around the televisions. Well, some of you will. My wife planned a, a uh, overnight getaway to a water park on Super Bowl Sunday. That's what good wives do. They call it family time. But everybody else besides the Badals will be sitting around the TV. And a great phenomenon is going to take place. We are going to see Super Bowl commercials. Who cares about the game? It's all about the commercials. Businesses have spent upwards to three million dollars for a 30-second ad. 30 seconds is not a lot of time to be able to get your point across. Three million reasons why it is imperative that you say what you're going to say, say it clearly, and say it in a way that people will never forget it. As I began to think about this whole idea of advertising, I thought of 
one of the greatest advertising statements that have ever been used. It's used by an insurance company. And it says this, just a simple slogan, takes just a matter of a couple seconds to share it. And that is, you're in good hands with... Amazing. We have a choir in the church. You're in good hands with Allstate. Oh, they accomplished what they wanted to get you to do. You've not forgotten. At the moment that your preacher gets up and shares those words right on cue, you are ready to articulate the name of the company that makes that claim. You're in good hands with Allstate. I did some research in regards to the marketing team that put this statement together, and they said the following in regards to putting what they have as the greatest statement this marketing firm has ever given to any customer. They say, we thought about what we may talk about in the insurance company, and we learned this. We as individuals purchase insurance with the thought that even though we don't want to use it, we want it to be there in our time of need. Isn't that why we buy insurance? No one buys insurance to use it, at least I hope not. But we buy it knowing that there is a chance, that there is a time where we'll be backing out of the Walmart parking lot and the kids will be screaming in the back seat of the car and you're giving them the discipline of the Lord and backing out at the same time and that other car comes out of nowhere and you hit it. Aren't you in your, aren't you in good, uh, aren't you glad you're in good hands? Don't tell Derek Eastman I said this. He works for one of the other companies. I wouldn't want someone talking about the other pork chop cooker from the pulpit, but I'll do it. I'm the preacher. I get away with these things. But we purchased the insurance as a result of our need. John tells us in these opening verses of the second chapter, we're in good hands. We are in good hands, but not with an insurance company, but Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about uh, the good hands that you find yourself in? Have you called yourself a believer that you are in the hands of Almighty God? Jesus said that they are such good hands that no one can pluck us from His hands. Did you know that because you're in such good hands that the devil has to ask for permission before he does anything in your life that will bring you any trial or tribulation? That's how good of hands you are in. Whatever you're dealing with today, the devil has to go and say, Hey, uh, by the way, Jesus, can I mess around with Tim? Can I bring havoc into his life? Please let me. And Jesus says yes or no, and he builds parameters around it. We're in good hands. We find ourselves in need of these good hands because John tells us that in spite of all that the false teachers have shared, that we do sin and that we will sin. And if we sin, we have a problem. And if we have a problem, we need a solution. And that only solution can be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the whole idea that is found in these opening two verses of chapter 2. See, because when we sin, we live in darkness. And John articulates that because we live in darkness and because our God reveals himself as pure light, that when we sin, we stand under the wrath of God. 
And that wrath needs to be turned away. And John is going to tell us how that happens. So how are we to live in good hands? How are we to have fellowship with our God even though we sin? There are many of you today, in fact all of us today, if we're honest with ourselves, are struggling with sin. You've come today after a week of struggling with sin. And so it's not good for us to come and claim that we have not sinned. It's not good for us to come and to try to pretend that we're not sinning right now. Because we are. We all struggle with sin. And it's something we have to deal with. If we want to find freedom in, in, in the life that finds fellowship with God, we have to deal with this issue of sin. So being in Christ's good hands involves three things. First of all, it involves fleeing from the practice of sin. Fleeing from the practice of sin. Notice what verse 1 says. My dear children, I write, to the, write this to you so that you will not sin. I love how he starts this opening segment. He's just uh, nailed the uh, false teachers to the wall, even using some of their own language at the end of chapter 1. And he starts out chapter 2 and he says, My dear children. Remember in week 1, John writes this letter with two distinct manners as a part of it. Number one, it's a polemical uh, uh, letter, meaning there's an argument going on. John, this elder statesman, the one that walked with Jesus, deals with the false teachers. And he says, you're lying. And the truth is not in you. You deceive yourself. And God's word does not reside in your life. And he's having this argument with the false teachers. But I told you just as I did in the week one that it wasn't just polemical, but it was pastoral. That this letter was all about the people that he was writing to. He loves them. He cares about them. And as a good pastor who argues uh, the air that is found in false teaching, a good pastor comes around his people and he cares for them and loves them. My dear children, literally in the Greek it means my little born ones. What do you think that he's saying there? My little born ones. This says a lot about the author John and the recipients. Now I know this is a little before we deal with fleeing from the practice of sin, but I want you to write these three things down. Just as a reminder, it shows us first of all these three words, my dear children, of of a man who is advanced in age. He's advanced in his years. This is not some young upstart that's just come around new to the block. This is a man who had been around for a while. First John, uh, almost all scholars say, was written between 90 A.D. and 100 A.D. That would make John probably anywhere from 80 to the youngest, at the youngest thing, to almost 100 years of age. In fact, historians tell us and church fathers tell us that when John the Apostle entered the room in Ephesus, they would call out, it is the elder, it is the elder. A word of affirmation as this elder statesman would enter into the room. There was reverence. He had walked with Jesus. He had talked with Jesus. This is in comparison to, the, uh, to those false teachers who had brought a new way of thinking. They were new to the block. 
They were new to this thing called Christianity and they were bringing a new teaching. But here is this elder statesman who stood the test of time and who brought words of wisdom. I've seen Jesus. I've heard Jesus. I've touched Jesus. I've seen him in his life before his death, burial, and resurrection, and I saw him after that. Notice it shows a man of affection. A man of affection. This phrase exudes one of love and care towards his people. He's worried about them. He wants to see them grow. Even though his words at time are difficult for us as Christians to comprehend and for us to swallow, to live the way he's telling us to, he time in and time out articulates words of concern. He shares the words of affirmation with them. Oh, words from those who are older than us are needed. But greater than that, words from people who are older than us who share it with love. I wrote those things down and next to my notes I wrote the name Dave Hartman. Uh, Most of you know Dave Hartman. I don't know, is Dave Hartman even in this service? Where's Dave at? There's Dave. I want to tell you about something. I'm a man's man. But there's something about Dave Hartman. He comes up to me and he puts his hand right on me and he starts rubbing my back. And I melt. And you know what he says? He says, hey, Timmy, how are you? Here's this older guy. Now, I got to tell you, Dave one time came up to me and said, someone had come up to him and said, I, I, you're not supposed to call the pastor Timmy. I looked at Dave and I said, you don't dare stop calling me Timmy. It reminds me I'm someone's son. It reminds me I'm still a young boy. And Dave comes around and he just loves on me. I didn't, I didn't think so much love could come through a hand. He just loves on me. How are you? How are the kids? How Yesterday after the men's breakfast, he's just loving on me. I love it. I love watching those who are older than me share love. But Dave is one of the greatest men of wisdom that I know and he shares words of wisdom to me. Yesterday he was telling me, be careful. Be careful that uh, you're going to blink and these boys are going to be fully grown. Spend time with them. Care for them. Minister to them. Invest your all in them. Words of an older man with affection are words that we need to hear. But notice those words that come with affection and come with uh, age are words of great authority. He expects the people to listen. This is not something that are are just little uh, tidbits of information. Hey, do with him what you will. He shares them and he wants us. He's commanding us to believe what he says, and to do just as he has told us to. So it's amidst this kind of relationship that he says to us words that are impossible for us to live out. I write this to you so that you will not sin. That you won't sin. John, don't you know how impossible that is? You've just told us we're sinners. You've just told us when we sin, we're to confess it. And God is faithful and just to forgive us. And now you tell us that we ought not sin. What are we to do with this? What he's telling us is to flee the practice of sinning. The false teacher said, don't worry about your sin. It's not going to ruin your relationship with God. 
Live however you want to. It's not your fault. It's your flesh's fault. You're not culpable for it. But John says, I write this that you do not sin. He expects us to sin and he commands us not to do it and to work with all of who we are to not live in that way. It's within the statement, do not sin, that we see two sides to the coin. One side we see a positive affirmation and on the other side we see more of a negative one. Let's look at the positive side first because he reminds us that we should attain to something. Notice what is said. Do not sin. Well, what is the opposite of do not sin? The opposite is live in holiness. Just because we can sin, it doesn't mean we have to. It doesn't mean we should pursue it. This is a direct shot against the false teaching of that day that said you can't help yourself from sinning. It isn't your fault. But as believers, we know that when we sin, it is because we pursue the appetites of our sinful nature instead of pursuing holiness. And you better believe it is our fault. But you can't help yourself. You better believe we can. As believers, we have the power because greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. That no temptation can overtake us because every time God makes a way of escape. Oh, we can help ourselves. But he says on this thing that we ought to attain and pursue holiness. This is seen throughout the New Testament. Peter reminds us of this. Turn in your Bibles just a couple pages to your left to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. We'll start in verse 15. In fact, we'll start, we'll start at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice what Peter says, some very similar terminology. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Then he shares words from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. One translation says, be perfect, just as I am perfect. Wow, those are difficult words. It's the same words that Paul would share when he says, be imitators of Christ as dearly loved children. Do you see the terminology that's being used? We are the children of God. We are loved by God. We are uh, saved by God. And because of that, God expects, like, like I expect my three little boys to be obedient and to live up to the name that they carry. To not live as they want to, but to live as those who are my children. But how do we do it? What does it look like? Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you're in 1 Peter, keep going to your left. A couple uh, pages, about 15 or 20 pages in your Bible to the book of Colossians. Chapter 3, the short book. And this is what Paul says. What does a life that attains towards holiness look like? 
verse 12 of chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dear loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. How do we do that? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Well, what is to be our guide? He says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all <clears throat> in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We've got to change the way we live. John says, hey, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And he doesn't just leave it ambiguous and say, hey, uh, the Bible doesn't say, well, try to figure out what that means. The Bible is chock full of commands to live as obedient children, to put on the things, the fruit of the Spirit that will guard our hearts and mind in the time of temptation. Many of us fall to so much of our temptations not because we do, is that we don't want to sin, it's that we're not pursuing holiness enough that it doesn't, get, it doesn't crowd out the temptations of sin. I've learned in my life that I fall to far more sin when I'm not pursuing a life of holiness. What part of your life are you attaining towards holiness? It's the positive affirmation of fleeing from the practice of sin. You want to get sin out of your lives? Then focus in on the holiness of God. Pursuing it. Paul said, I beat my body into submission so that I will not disqualify myself. This idea here is disciplining our bodies towards godliness. Pursuing it with all our hearts as if it's this beautiful prize. But notice, it isn't just attaining something, it's avoiding something as well. What are we to avoid? Sin. John is writing to us so that we will not sin. This isn't just pursuing a righteous life, it is to not sin. This phrase here literally means that we are not to tolerate sin in our lives. This is where the metaphor of God in 1 John 1, 5 is of key importance. God is light. If God is light, then He has no exposure to sin. If we are pursuing sin, we live in darkness. If we live in darkness, we cannot have fellowship with God. And so there are some of us who are trying to attain towards purity and holiness, and we can't do it until we deal with our skeletons in the closet. We can't pursue holiness. We can't attain towards righteousness until we deal with the issues. And that's why he says in verse 1-9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can't pursue the righteousness that brings forth the fellowship of God until we deal with some things. Sin pollutes James 1.27 says that we are polluted 
by the darkness that is in the world. How are you being polluted by it this morning? What sins are you not avoiding? I love what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9 tells us, speaking of Christ. It says the following. I'll just read it for you. It's a short verse. Hebrews 1 9. You have loved righteousness. This is speaking of Christ. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Oh, we want to be like Jesus. But do you hate sin? Do you hate it? If you struggle with sin, especially uh, indwelling habitual sin in your lives, I've got, a, I've got a book I want you to read. It's written by uh, a man who is long since deceased named John Owen. And John Owen writes a couple books. First of all, the book is called The Mortification of Sin. The Mortification of Sin. Not very long, but incredibly deep. And what it talks about is it talks about how we need to deal with our sin. The second book that John Owen writes on this subject, one of the greatest writers on this very subject, John Owen's writes on overcoming sin and temptation. Two books that you need to pick up. Two books that will change the way you look at temptation and sin. John is writing and he's telling us, he is telling us that we should not sin. He's calling us to be vigilant in our destruction of the sin that wreaks havoc in our lives. You will not walk in the light as He is in the light until you deal with the serpent called sin. You throw that sin on the ground and you crush it and you destroy it. Because if you don't, it will wreak its ugly head in your life day in and day out and it will destroy you and all those that are around you. We have to deal with sin. This word hated wickedness in Hebrews literally means to detest, abhor, to persecute. Oh, we're so lax and, and so, so quick to coddle our sin. Not to mortify it. Not to destroy it. Not to fight against it. I like that idea to persecute it. To not let it sleep. To not allow it to uh, grow anymore. But to seek it out and to destroy it. We need to flee from the practice of sin. That's John's first thing. Number two, he tells us we need to face the problem with sin. We need to face our problem with sin. You say, Tim, isn't that the same thing? Not really. Let's look back to our text. First John uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the second part. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay, we got that. But if anybody does sin, the next phrase that comes out is a phrase that says, okay, we understand we're called not to sin, but what happens when we do sin? Because you said that we're going to. If we do, what are we to do about it? John gives us a couple things that we need to remember. First of all, we need to be reminded of a truth that we all must face. It involves a truth that we must all face. And that is the following. We will sin. We already have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Let's say it with a little more conviction. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are we to do with that? 
We're to recognize it. We are to understand that we are sinners. Psalm 51 reminds us that the sin problem that we have is, is something that came to us at birth. Psalm 51 verses 3 through 5, write this in your outlines. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Well, he, of course he sinned. He, he had slept with uh, Bathsheba. He had killed Uriah. That's easy to write. But notice what he says in verse 5 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Surely I was sinful at birth. Maybe he was a bad kid. Maybe he had kicked one of the nurses when he came out at birth. He goes even farther. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We're sinners. We're sinners by birth. We've inherited the guilt of Adam's sin in the garden. And because we're born of sinful mothers and fathers, we too are sinners. And we're sinful at birth. But notice this truth that we must face. Isn't that we're just sinful at birth? But we're sinful by behavior. Write that down. We're sinful by birth and we're sinful by behavior. Because of our sin, we are totally depraved. Now we use that terminology and many times we don't understand it. What it means to be totally depraved isn't that we are as bad as we could be. We're not all Adolf Hitler's. We're not all Joseph Stalin's and Osama Bin Laden's. But what it means is that every part of who we are has been affected by sin. We're totally sinful. There's not a molecule in my body that doesn't have the mark of sin in its life. You guys know that. You guys have seen that. Of course that kid's completely sinful. I saw you grow up. Jeff laughed at least to it. There's not a part of us that isn't sinful. And so what do we do? Because we're born into sin, we start pursuing the things of sin. Paul writes about this in the book of Romans, chapter 1. We studied this in, in the series that I entitled The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The only good about it is the gospel in Romans 1, and then it's all about us, and it just goes from bad to ugly. But this is what it says. What is it that we're to pray? Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. But Tim, those are the sinners. In the next verse, you therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. I hope that helps your self-esteem. We're sinners. We're sinners by birth and we're sinners by behavior. We are sinners who do sinful things. 
The reason why we fall into sexual morality is because we're sinners. The reason why we tell lies is because we're sinners. The reason why we gossip and slander is because we're sinners. The reason why we shake our fists at God is because we're sinners. That's why there's all kinds of news at 10 o'clock at night. Most of it bad. Because we're sinners. And we need to recognize that. And we need to man up and woman up to that fact. We are sinners in need of a radical grace that can only come from God. So what does that mean? There's a temptation that we must fight. I like how the uh, New Living Translation translates 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Write that in your outlines and uh, let me share that with you. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Paul's talking about the issue of temptation. And you say, Tim, I I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a bad sinner. But you don't know the kind of attack that I'm under. That's not biblical. We do know the attack. Why? Because every temptation, the NIV says, is common to man. You're not the only one in this fight. There's a temptation. We fall to it. But we should fight it. Now why would we fall to sin if we as believers know that sin is bad and that sin leads to our destruction? Why would we follow it? Because it's attractive. Because it's alluring. Remember Moses in Hebrews chapter 11? He could have stayed in Egypt and been a part of the pleasures unspeakable in Egypt as one who is in the family of Pharaoh. But it says that he would only have experienced it for a short time. Isn't that true of sin? Oh, it's great. That which we know to be wrong feels and tastes and looks so good. It allures us in. Proverbs chapter 7 speaks about sin as this, uh, uh, this harlot. And this young man is walking down the street. Unaware, knowing that he's in the harlot's neighborhood. Unaware, but he's being allured. He looks through uh, the fence and he sees and he walks next to sin and he's allured by it. He's attracted by it. Don't let anybody ever tell you that sin isn't attractive. It is. It's incredibly attractive. But it takes you farther than you want to go. It holds you there longer than you want to stay. And it makes you stray farther than you've ever wanted to go. That's what sin does. It's beautiful. It looks like light. It feels like light. But in the end, it's dark to the core. It isn't easy to fight it. It's like that bug zapper. During the summertime. You know what I'm talking about. Those little cages with the nice blue light. It just hums, and you're just there, and you're not attracted to it. But those little buggers are, aren't they? I want you to think about that metaphor, that illustration. Because why do the flies and the mosquitoes go to it? Because they're attracted. You would have thought, someone would have said, stay away from the blue light. I lost a good friend because of the blue light. But if you stand next to the blue light, zinc, 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 they don't learn. Man, just like human beings when it comes to sin. We see people lose their families. We see people lose their ministries. We see people lose all that they've worked so hard to have. 
We see them break fellowship with their families, break fellowship with their God, break fellowship with their church, and we see them getting zapped one after another. And what do we do when we're by ourselves? Oh, look at the light. That's nice light. And you're running to that light, even though, and I don't mean to be gross, you see the body parts of your brother and sister laying by the wayside. And you can't even look at that because you're too busy looking at the attractiveness of sin. This is what John's talking about. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if you do, deal with it. But how are we to do that? How are we to deal with sin? I want you to write these things down. I know I've got, uh, I've got communion still. We're going to get through all this, but I, this is important stuff. Five ways that I want you to fight temptation. Turn in your Bibles for a moment, and we're going to hear from Peter, John's friend, fellow disciple Peter, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. How, how do you deal with it, Tim? How do we deal with the temptation? If it's so attractive, it's so alluring, how do we deal with it? First of all, we need to know our place. We need to know our place. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. He goes in verse 5, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, he says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. The first thing we need to understand as, as Christians in dealing with temptation is that we need to know we're sinners. We have this idea that we're not going to sin. I hear people that talk about someone else who has fallen to sin, and you know what the first thing they'll say, and it breaks my heart, I won't fall to that. Why'd they do that? How dumb could they be? Couldn't they help themselves? Let's talk about your issue. Maybe that's not your battlefield that you're fighting right now. But you're a sinner. You know, it just takes a couple buttons for the devil to push and you'll fall to sin. Be careful that you don't filled with pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Know your place. You are, culp- you are uh, capable of falling to sin. If it were not for the grace of God, I stand as an example to you, I would be involved in every vice, living it up to the fullness on my way to hell if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that. Number two, rest in God's provision. Rest in God's provision. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. In your time of temptation, in your time of struggle, in your time when you're not pursuing righteousness, fall in the arms of Jesus. In His hand. I love my father's hands. They're the biggest hands my guys at work call him sausage fingers because he's got massive hands. But you know what? I love my dad, Mr. Sausage Fingers. The reason why is because his hands are powerful. You know, Bob Malik's got powerful hands. Anybody shook Bob Malik's hands? He breaks your hand. It's a vice. That's our God. Sorry, Bob, but you're a young schoolgirl when it comes to God's mighty hand. And he can amen that, I know. We rest in that. 
Though we're incapable at times of, of saying no to sin because of the allurement of sin, it's God's mighty right hand that will be able to lift us out of that issue of sin. He says he'll make a way of escape. He'll scoop us up and he'll pull us out. Number three, make self-defense a priority. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. He ain't playing games. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you and me. Do you understand that? He wants to devastate every aspect of your life. He wants to do it so that you will not be able to give God glory, so you'll disqualify yourself from the ministry that God has from you, and so that He can wreak havoc in His life. He prowls around like we see on Animal Planet, just waiting for you to get vulnerable, for you to get by yourself, so that you will start falling to sin. You know, people say, Tim, why why do we have so many things going on at church? Is it about the programs? No. The elders just recognize that when we're by ourselves, we fall a lot more. Very few times do I hear people falling of sexual immorality because they're in the church. It happens, but not as it's pretty rare compared to when it happens outside of the church. My brothers and sisters that struggle with with cursing, I don't hear a lot of cursing going on in this area. Why? We're around brothers and sisters. Now, we may be pretending, but I'll tell you, uh, the, the uh, uh, what do you call it? Convicting power of our presence together keeps us from uttering those words. But boy, we get in the car and we become Lee Elia from the Cubs. Cub fans know what I'm talking about. Every word that comes out of our mouth is filled with evil and vice. We stay together because the devil looks around for us when we're vulnerable to destroy us. Make self-defense a priority. What are you putting in your life that keeps you from that lion who is pursuing you? Number four, remember your partners in the war. Remember your partners in the war. Verse nine, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of of suffering. You're not alone in this. This is why accountability is so important. We don't struggle with different sins. A group this size, there'd probably be a handful of major issues that we would all have. We'd say, hey, there's brothers there, but we don't confess our sins one to another. And therefore, we think that everybody's right and everybody's pure except for me. So we wallow in that sin and we are defeated in that sin. And little do we know that there are brothers and sisters. Man, if we would just understand verse 9, our small groups would be a different place. There would be less time for coffee. Because there would be hearts that are broken saying, help me. The devil's wreaking havoc in my life and I need your help. Finally, entrust yourself to God's process of grace. And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you. He'll make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. We have a great high priest who stands on our behalf. Who is there to help us in our time of need. 
That we can turn to Him in our times of temptation knowing He will never tempt you more than you can bear. Can't say I can't help myself. He won't allow you to be tempted more than what you can handle. What a grace that He gives. That's what it means to be in good hands. To be in the mighty hands of God. Oh, the third point is we need to find the only provision for our sin. We need to find the only provision for our sin. So if anyone does sin, what are we to do? We understand how bad sin is now. John, what are we to do about it? I wonder if the people were, were, that John was speaking to were starting to get freaked out. In light of the false teachers, what will happen to us if we sin? These people say over here, they don't sin. So what's going to happen to me when I do? John deals with it. He says, if you sin, and if you deal with it in the right way, you're in good hands. What does it involve? It involves a Savior that defends us. It involves a Savior that defends us. John brings words of great comfort and assurance. We have a Savior. Notice what he says in 1 John 2 verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What's he saying there? There's a courtroom imagery taking place. We find ourselves in the courtroom guilty as charged. And we stand before God who is light. In Him there is no darkness. And we stand in complete darkness. And so we stand there guilty as charged, looking at our judge, knowing that our judge will convict us of all the unrighteousness that we have. But at that moment, just like in a great uh, L.A. Law or Perry Mason or Law and Order episode, Someone comes running into the door. And right before the gavel of that judge comes down, our advocate comes into the room. The great defense attorney walks in. Now, it's not one of our buddies. It's not my friends. Rich Wood can't come into the courtroom and say, Hey, I'll stand in for him because Rich Wood is as guilty as I am. And his day in court is coming just as mine has. So we can't do it for each other. Who is it? John says it is Jesus, the Christ, the righteous one. Who can stand in our stead? Only Jesus. This Jesus that John had touched and seen and heard. This Jesus that had died and rose again. It is this Jesus who just like his Father in heaven is light. He is the righteous one. He's the only one who can take care of our sins. We stand guilty. And yet here this advocate comes to our defense. And he deals with us. Not as one who's about to be convicted. But it says he talks, he speaks to the Father. This idea here is not an argument going on. But it's a word between a loving Father and His Son. And what Jesus does is He comes to us. He puts his arm around us and he looks to the Father and says, I know Tim Bidal stands as black as sin before you. But I shed my blood for him. He is free of all sin. He's been cleansed of all unrighteousness. He has been purified, verse 7, of all sins. Zechariah Chapter 3 speaks of this. You can look at that later this week. Zechariah 3 speaks of Joshua the high priest and this whole imagery of the devil accusing 
Because that's what the devil does. He gets us to fall to sin and then he takes our highlight reels to the Father in heaven. And he says, look at this. What has happened? Jesus comes on our behalf. He did that when he went to the cross. He absorbed the full wrath of God. Now notice, it's not just the Savior that defends us. But a sacrifice that delivers us. Because he's the righteous one. Because Jesus is the perfect one. The sinless one, the pure one, the holy one, the radiant one, the excellent one, the spotless one. Because of all those things, he is righteous. And because he is righteous, his death is powerful and effective in our hour of need. Notice what John says. He is the atoning death for our sins. And we come to an important theological concept. The idea of propitiation, expiation. The idea behind this word atoning is one of greatest importance for us to understand. When we stand before God full of sin and full of darkness, what happens is when we are found guilty, it's God takes all of His wrath against our sin, sending us to hell, and He pours out His eternal wrath on us because we're sinners. That's what He does. The book of Ephesians says that we are children of wrath because of the sins that we've committed. And so when this great attorney comes into the room, he turns away the wrath of God. He turns it away. But that wrath has got to go somewhere. And so that attorney, when he puts his arm around me in that courtroom, and he says, Father, don't pour your wrath out on him. He's perfect. He's blameless. Because you poured your wrath, Father, out on me on the cross of Calvary. I absorbed all the wrath of Timbadal's sins when I hung on that tree. And because of that, I can stand as a child of God. But we come to a section that brings us a little question. Because it says that Jesus isn't just the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What are we to do with that? Does that mean that that God has turned His wrath away from all people? The entire world? Well, if God's turned His wrath away from the entire world, then what that means is is that uh, there's no more wrath for us. We'll all be in heaven. So that can't be what John is talking about. So what is John saying? What John is telling us in its important context is king here, that John is saying, be careful, brothers and sisters in Christ. That you don't hog Jesus for yourself. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And thank God for it. But understand this. Recognize this. He's not just the atoning sacrifice for us. But myriads of others. See the the context is the Gnostics of their day said hey. We've got a close relationship with God. We've got it. No one else can. It's like Noah and Joshua. My oldest and middle son. Noah will say. Uh. Uh, Joshua, I just want you to know, uh, we're going to go to a, a movie, but only, only seven-year-olds get to go. <laughs> and then Joshua, what? I can't go, why not? Like, don't fall for his stupid tricks, kid. But that's what we do with Jesus. Sorry, Nana and a boo-boo. He's my Jesus. What John is saying is he's, he can be everyone's Jesus. He can be the atoning sacrifice for everyone. They bow the knee to Jesus. They can be a part of 
his family. John is speaking to a Jewish audience. And he's saying, hey, this isn't just a Jewish thing. Had they heard this, and as they did, they would have thought back to the mercy seat. They would have thought of the scapegoat. And they would have said, hey, that's for us. We're the nation of Israel. We're the only ones. No, my friends, this isn't a Jewish thing. Jesus isn't the great high priest of Israel. He's the great high priest of all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus' atoning sacrifice will atone for the sins of every tribe, tongue, nation that will stand before Jesus. And we read it in the book of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. It reminds us to remember not to hog Jesus because Jesus covers all sins. He covers all of our sins. No matter what sin you carry, all people matter to Jesus. And so what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? This should ignite our hearts to evangelism. It should ignite our hearts to tell our friends and our relatives and our co-workers, you don't have to absorb the wrath of God. God has made a way. God will one day pour out His wrath on people. John says these words, articulates these words from Jesus in John 3.36. Embed these in our hearts and minds. John 3.36 says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Your brothers and sisters, your moms and your dads, your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors that don't know Jesus Christ are standing in condemnation and the wrath of God is upon them. And one day they will stand on the, uh, on the day of judgment before their God in heaven and they will stand there and there will not be an advocate in that room. And so what are we called to? We're called to go into all the world and to teach people there is an advocate. There is one who can take away the sins of the world. There is one who can take away your wrath. But we're so focused in on our sin. We're so focused on dealing with us. We can't tell the world there is an atoning sacrifice for sins and His name is Jesus Christ. That's where we've got to get to. That's what John is trying to say. Don't hog Jesus for yourself. Give that atoning sacrifice to the world. Proclaim it and preach it. Aren't you glad we have a Savior? Aren't you glad that we have an advocate? Aren't you glad we have one who forgives us, who cleanses us? Aren't you glad that when we sin, we have a place of cleansing, a place of cleaning? Aren't you glad that we can seek and ask for forgiveness and we can get right with God? Aren't you glad? This should change our worship. This should change our daily lives. We have an advocate. God doesn't need us to be perfect. He needs us to be willing to seek Him with all our hearts. I want us to bow our heads. I'm going to ask the men to come forward. I'm going to ask uh, April if she'll come up. And in response to this, it's time for us to do some examination of our own. We say we have fellowship with God. But is there sin? And if there is sin and we find ourselves living in darkness, then what are we to do with it? 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us we ought to examine ourselves. Is there sin? 
then you have been assured you have an advocate. This time of communion is to remember that atoning sacrifice for sin. But we ought not take this unless we first examine our hearts. Because if we don't, we will take this supper in an unworthy manner. And we will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. So if you've never come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, then instead of taking the elements, take Jesus. Receive Him into your life. If you don't know what that all means, we want to talk with you after the service. We want to speak to you about the advocate that you can have. But for the believers around here, it's time for us to get right with God. To pursue our advocate. To praise God for Him. And to enjoy the fellowship of communing with Him at His table. Let's spend some time praying about that as the men come and serve the elements to us.